We're going to continue with the confession, but I do like to read a passage of Scripture before I begin just to sort of set the stage for what I'm going to say. I, I usually try to find a Bible verse that can encapsulates uh, as much of the theme as I can. And so John chapter 14 verse 6 says, this is Jesus speaking, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there we see Christ himself very clearly asserting that he is the mediator between the Father and anyone who would come to the Father. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you'd bring us all back together. We thank you for your word that we've heard. We thank you and worship you because we can see throughout history and there clearly written out in your word that you take the plans of men and you even use the sins of fallen men to bring about and execute your purposes according to your will, Lord, and it is all to the praise of your glorious grace that you work these things. It's all ultimately to the praise of your grace manifest in Christ. And so we ask as we look at your word and as we look at a lot of scripture this evening that you'd bless our time, that you'd uh, give us uh, a better understanding of what it is that you've done for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I pray as always that we would understand and become more mentally acquainted with what the scriptures have to say about the Lord Jesus, but also spiritually. We, we need to come become spiritually and affectionately acquainted with the Lord Jesus and to see uh, His sufficiency and the, the necessity of coming to you by the means that you have ordained, namely uh, the person of Jesus Christ. And so we, we ask that you'd bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we have, uh, we're entering, or we have entered now into the second section of the confession. First principles, chapters 1 through 6, and then we're calling the second main section, the covenant. Chapter 7, we looked at, is actually entitled, Of God's Covenant, and we looked there at just three short paragraphs um, with regard to the covenant of grace, and now we move into chapter 8, which is entitled of Christ the Mediator, but we've not moved out of the discussion of the covenant. And I want to try to explain that just briefly. Again, the whole section, chapter 7 to 20, all revolves around the doctrine of the covenant. I tried to really emphasize that when we began chapter 7, that it is the... A proper understanding of what God has done by way of covenant that really brings out the, 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 the whole, um, the breadth of Scripture and seeing how it all fits together as one revelation and one work. And so every chapter from chapter 7 to chapter 20, and if we wanted to we could even go beyond that, but every chapter from, from chapter 7 to chapter 20 is related in some way to the covenant. And so... Keep that in mind. Chapter 8 is called of Christ the mediator. Now we say mediator of what? Mediator of the covenant. In particular, the covenant of grace, the new covenant, 
And so when we, as we move forward, what we're really doing is digging into the details of the covenant of grace. There is a broader way to understand covenant theology, but the best way to understand especially the covenant of grace or the new covenant is really to dig into the details of the new covenant and the covenant of grace because it sort of flavors and orders all of the other covenants throughout history. You'll remember last week I said, or I quoted A.W. Pink, when he says that a mediator is one who goes between two parties to settle any differences with a view to their permanent reconciliation. A mediator is essentially a go-between. He is an arbiter between two parties. Here, chapter 8 of Christ, the mediator. He's the mediator of the new covenant. He is the arbiter between two parties. Who are the two parties? God and men. So Christ comes between God and men to settle any differences between us in order to the permanent reconciliation of God and men. Now what does this entail? Are there any requirements for someone to be a, a, a suitable mediator? Can anybody step in and say, I think I would like to try out for mediator? Well, as we're going to see, a mediator has to be able to deal with both parties he can't just say, I, I relate really well to mankind. Well, that's not enough because you've also got to mediate with God. You can't say, well, I, I deal very well with God because you also have to mediate with men. He has to be able to deal with both parties in a suitable manner. He has to be able to actually settle the differences, not just gloss over them or not figure out some way that we can get both parties to agree to just put our differences aside, but he has to be able to actually settle the differences. And the settlement must produce permanent reconciliation, not something that's going to falter in a few years or fall to the wayside in a few years. So chapter 8 is showing us that Jesus Christ is that mediator. He is the mediator between God and men. He's able to deal with both parties. He actually really settles the differences and his settlement and his reconciliation is a permanent, forever eternal reconciliation. So we pick up paragraph one I've called the establishment of the mediator. And we'll just go this far tonight, paragraph one. The establishment of the mediator. And the questions that I want to try to answer or that I think this paragraph answers are, number one, where does this doctrine begin, this doctrine of Christ as mediator? What does it mean that Christ is mediator? And what does it accomplish that Christ is mediator? And in this paragraph, we're taken back into eternity to the origin of Christ's work as mediator. We are shown the basic duties that He exercises as mediator, and we are shown the primary application of His work as mediator in time. Again, where does it begin? What does it mean? What does it accomplish? We look at the origin, we look at the exercises, and then we'll see the application or the accomplishment of His mediatorial work. So first, the origin of Christ's mediatorial work. Where does this concept begin? Does Christ step in as mediator according to plan B? God sees that things aren't going the way that they should go. He, he comes and He tries to make this covenant with Israel at Sinai and they say, oh, we don't want to take that grace. We would turn it into works. And so God says, no, 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 we can't do that. We've got to come up with a plan B. Is that how Christ came to be mediator? 
Some people think that that's so. Was the Son of God basically compelled to step in and act for a people that He loved and make reconciliation between them and God, even though the Father didn't really want to? The Father really wants to just punish everybody, and the Son comes in to try to smooth things over, and, then, and thus the Father is now obligated against His will to be kind to these people. Is that why? Is that the, the origin? Christ's love contrasted against the Father's anger. Where does this begin? Well, this paragraph answers that question in, in the opening phrase. First we see that Christ's mediatorial work is according to God's eternal pleasure. It pleased God in His eternal purpose. It starts in eternity. Whatever God has done or is doing or will do, God purposed in eternity. God's eternal purpose is the same as synonymous with His eternal decree for all intents and purposes. And so it pleased God. God was not constrained by anything outside of Himself God was constrained by His own pleasure. It was Him. God is happy. It pleased God in His eternal purpose. And that's where this, all of this is rooted. We could say, again, why anything? God's pleasure. It pleased God. Why save any? It pleased God. Why are leaves green and not orange? It pleased God. Why is the sky red or blue and not red? It pleased God. The answer underlying every question we could imagine is it pleased God. But here particularly the mediatorial work of Christ begins in the eternal pleasure of God. Secondly, we see that it deals with the eternal Son of God's love. It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son. This is where we focused last week, Isaiah 42, 1. It pleased God to choose, that is, God chose Christ. He selected Him personally and He ordained Him. He appointed Him to the specific task of mediator. He gave Him this job. The Father gives to the Son the job of mediator. The other scripture reference right there beside Isaiah 42.1 is 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20. I'll just read verse 20. It begins with the word He, that's Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. He was foreknown. That word foreknown refers to the pre-temporal affection of God, God's eternal love. He was foreknown, not some things about Him were foreknown. This is not God just knowing about His Son, but it is the foreknowledge, the pretemporal affection from the Father to the Son. God, when it comes to just knowledge, God knows everything. He foreknows everything. There's no reason to say He was foreknown. Everything's foreknown. If you're just talking about mental knowledge... That language in Scripture, the, the being foreknown, a person or a group being foreknown by God is talking about the affection of God in eternity. He, Christ, was foreknown. He is the eternal Son of God's love. Colossians 1.17, speaking of the beloved Son or the Son of God's love, says, He is before all things. 
and in Him all things hold together. So we're dealing, starting with the eternal pleasure of God, going straight over the eternal Son of God's love, and then we see that it is also rooted in the eternal covenant of redemption. It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both. God's choosing and ordaining was according to the covenant made between them both. That's what we call the covenant of redemption. Or the everlasting covenant, or the everlasting covenant of peace. Christ entered into the covenant of redemption as Himself for His people. And thus, Christ began His mediation, in a sense, in eternity. Christ enters into the covenant of redemption as our federal head, our representative. That covenant of redemption is a covenant of works. He must work. He must obey. He must suffer. He must die. Because He accomplishes the work in that covenant, we receive the blessings through the covenant of grace. It's work for Him, but it's grace to us. So where does this work of Christ as mediator begin, it begins in eternity. The Son of God is established as our mediator in eternity by way of the covenant of redemption. That's sort of recapping all that we saw last week, or, or most of what we saw last week from Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Secondly then, the second question is, what exactly does Christ do as mediator? And so the second heading... In this paragraph, is we see the offices of Christ's mediatorial work. The origin, where does it start? The offices, what does He do? What does it mean that Christ is mediator? Simply put, He acts as the go-between in all crucial matters of God's dealing with creatures and our dealing with Him. He's the go-between. Christ is the go-between in all crucial matters of God's dealing with creatures and our dealing with Him. Now first, this is the way the confession breaks this up, this mediatorial work is first special, a special work that the Son does between God and His elect, or what we would call the church. Now all of this is going to open up in the later paragraphs in this chapter. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I just want you to note how this, this per first paragraph lists them, and then the rest of the paragraphs open them up. First it says... It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet. So that's the first thing that the confession lists with regard to His mediatorial work between God and His elect, His church. The prophet. The prophet delivers the word of God to men. Prophets are speakers on behalf of God to men. God the Son not only spoke to men on behalf of God, but is Himself the incarnate Word of God to man. He is the full, final self-revelation from God to mankind in general, and even specifically to the elect, to His people. God speaks to His people in Christ. The confession 
references Acts. It says Acts 3, 22. I'm going to begin at the end of verse 20. Acts chapter 3, verse 20. That he may send Christ, send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Just to, as a... As a rabbit trail. This has nothing to do with anything. Heaven must receive Jesus until the time for restoring all things. Jesus is not going to come back before the time to restore all things. And when he does come back, it's going to be the time to restore all things. So there's, there's biblical eschatology. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Moses, who was a prophet preached and predicted that another prophet will come. And here Peter, an apostle of Christ, says that prophet that Moses spoke of is Jesus, the Christ. He is the Christ appointed for you. He is ordained the prophet from God. That's Christ. He comes and He reveals to us God. After the prophet, it says priest. So Christ is our priest. The priest mediated the worship of men in the presence of God. The, the, the priests were the worship leaders of the Old Covenant, the lead worshipers. And so God the Son brings His people into the presence of God, not by the means of the blood of bulls and goats, but by one singular perfect act of worship, namely His sinless life and substitutionary death. His own blood, He brings us and leads us into the worship, into the presence of God. Hebrews 5, 5 and 6, the verses just before what we looked at this morning, verses 7 to 10, verses 5 and 6, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God ordained, God the Father appointed Christ as our high priest to mediate the worship, our worship in the presence of God, to bring us to worship in the presence of God. Thirdly, he's the prophet, he's the priest, and king, it says. Another one of the offices of Christ's mediatorial work is that of king. The kings exercise authority over the people as well as the protection of the people. So God the Son because of His obedience unto death, has been raised and seated over all things and specifically over His church as the King. He is the ruling authority and protector of His church. Yes, He rules over all things by right, but He rules specifically over His church in a special way. Psalm 2.6, As for me, God speaking, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Speaking of his son. Luke 1.33, speaking of Christ, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's Christ as king. And I want to read just two other texts just to, to, to point out the 
the, the handing over of this authority, the appointment of this authority in light of His work. Philippians 2, 5-11, through 11, we, should, we should know this very well. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now notice the, the movement here. He empties himself, he takes the form of a servant, being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, in light of that work that Christ accomplished, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see the, the process in light of His finished work. Yes, He has always ruled over all things by right because He is God, but now He has a special place of mediatorial reign and lordship in light of His work of redemption. Hebrews 1 and verse 3 he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Notice, after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After He accomplishes His atoning work, He takes His seat as king, as ruler, at the right hand of the majesty on high. So He is prophet, He is priest, He is king over His people. Fourthly, he is the head of his church. Prophet, priest, king, head. I'm going to skip the words and savior. Head of his church. The head of the church is the leader of the church. And the church here is speaking both universally and locally. It's God's church. God's elect in all times and all places as well as the true believers in this room. Christ is the head. God exercises His prerogative over His church through His Son. His Son is the mediator of God's rule in His church. How does He do this? By Christ's doctrine, the Word of Christ, Christ's spiritual presence, meeting with His people. God rules over His church through Christ. Ephesians 1, and 23, He put, He, that's God, the Father, put all things under His, Christ's feet, and gave Him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Christ is given as head over all to the church, a special headship over His church, a, a leadership and an authority over His church. Now this phrase, head of the church, would have been very especially important at the time of the drafting of this confession in Reformation era Europe. Then, just like it is now, the Pope of Rome had set himself up and said, I'm the head of the church. And so in the Reformed confessions, you will see that they make a special point to say, and our Baptist forefathers here are asserting, as they do elsewhere in the confession, the Pope of Rome is not the head of the church, Neither is any other man head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. So prophet, priest, king, 
head of his church, and the Savior of his church. The Savior of his church. Again, if we go back to where we began in eternity, God the Son, or God the Father rather, commissions God the Son in the covenant of redemption to come and act as the sole Savior of His people. That's where it all started. Just like we saw in Isaiah last week, the, the message that Isaiah was preaching was not a message exclusive to the, the physical or national Jews of that day, the, the nation of Israel of that day. It's, it's an eternal message. God will save because only God can save. How will God save? He saves through His Son, the servant and mediator of the new covenant. Isaiah was preaching that message for all time. This is how God saves. Christ is the Savior of His church. Whether it's a local Gentile church, whether it was the elect, the believing remnant in Jerusalem during the days of Isaiah, Christ is the Savior of His church. Ephesians 5, 25-27 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ gave His life for her, the church. He's the Savior of His church. Another passage that will come up later, Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Pay careful. Paul here is talking to the Ephesian elders before he leaves. He's giving them instructions on what to do in his absence. And he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He, that's God, obtained with His own blood. Now that's a very interesting text. It'll come back up later in paragraph 7 when we talk about the communication of attributes. God will save His church. How is God going to save His church? He's going to obtain her with His own blood. Whoa, 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 whoa. God doesn't have blood. How can God obtain anything with His own blood? He does it through a mediator. Christ's blood is considered God's own blood. So that's the special work, Christ's mediatorial work to the church. He, he holds these offices, prophet, priest, king, head, savior of the church. But then it sort of broadens out to all creation. Christ is not only a mediator to His elect, but He's also, the confession says, the heir of all things. Now the heir is the, the next in line in the family to get all of the family wealth. God owns all things. Christ, is, Christ the Son is the recipient of all things. He is the heir of everything. Hebrews 1 and verse 2, In these last days He, God, has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Again, everything is His 
not only by right. Yes, He's God, and so everything belongs to Him. But this is a peculiar and special mediated ownership that He has earned for Himself by redemption. As one commentator commentating on that verse says, that He is the sovereign Lord of all, the absolute disposer, director, and governor of all persons and of all things. By Him, this is all speaking of Christ, by Him God made the worlds both visible and invisible, the heavens and the earth. By Him He made the old creation. By Him He makes the new creature. And by Him He rules, rules and governs. God governs and rules everything through His mediator who is Christ the Lord. Psalm 2 and verse 8 says, This is the Father speaking to the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That's covenant language. You ask, here's the, here's the, the terms, you ask, I give. But you've got to ask, and then if you, when you ask, I'll give. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations. Now it's very interesting to compare that language the nations and the ends of the earth to the New Testament interpretation of God's promise to Abraham that he would be the heir of the world. Christ is the fulfillment of every promise that God has ever made to any man. Prophet, priest, king, head, savior of his church, heir of all things. In addition to all that, it says that he is the judge of the world. God the Son mediates God's judgment. He exercises a judiciary rule by the power and authority of God according to the righteous standard of God. That's Christ does that. He's the judge of the world. John 5.22 For the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. The Father has given this to the Son. John 5, 27, and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Now that Son of Man, remember that's a particular reference to the, the incarnate Christ referenced in Daniel 7. The, the one as a Son of Man. Because He is the Son of Man, because He has agreed to mediate the terms of the covenant of redemption and assume human flesh, because He's the Son of Man, then He's given this authority, this mediatorial authority to execute judgment. John 9 verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. There we learn that the presence of Christ on the earth was a judgment to those in His day. He doesn't have to sit on a seat and say, you know, guilty, not guilty, guilty. His presence, His existence, the existence of His Word, the existence of His church in a godless society, that is judgment. When men reject Christ and reject His people and reject the gospel, Christ is executing judgment that way. He is the mediator of God's judgment on the earth. Acts 10.42 as he commanded us to preach to the people and, test, and to testify that he, Christ, is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. He is the ordained mediator, the ordained judge. 
of all. Acts 17.31 Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. God will judge by means of a man. The man Christ Jesus. So yes, it is good news. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus But that's also terrifying news to those who do not submit to Christ. There is one God and there is one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. And we will all stand before His presence someday to be judged by Him. We will look at a man just like us who fulfilled every dictate of the law of God every moment of his life and our mouths will be stopped because all we thought in this life was, well, nobody's perfect. Well, nobody's perfect. I mean, everybody messes up. Nobody's perfect. We'll stand before one like us who is perfect and we will be judged by a man. So it pleased God to set His Son over all things as mediator. Just like we've been reading, Joseph in, in Potiphar's house, Joseph in, in Pharaoh's palace over all Egypt. There was n- nobody higher except for the one who appointed him to that position. Nobody higher in Potiphar's house than Potiphar himself. Nobody higher than Egypt than Pharaoh himself. These men, they saw such capability in Joseph that they had no problems at all saying... Put him over it all. Just just let him do as he pleases. In the same way God has such pleasure and delight in His Son, He sees in Him such capability and worth, it makes Him happy to establish Him as mediator in all His works, in everything that He does. What are His offices and duties? Prophet, priest, king, head, savior, heir of all things, judge of all. Thirdly, we see the objective of Christ's mediatorial work. The objective. How is this applied? What does this accomplish? What's the ultimate aim of God as He puts forth His only begotten Son to be the mediator between Himself and men? What is God working to achieve? Again, we have to always keep in mind that this began in eternity. Whatever objective God has, it is an eternal objective. It begins in the purpose and the decree of God with the covenant of redemption. We know God is infinite. God is eternal. Therefore, whatever God is doing and will do and will have done in the end, when all of it's finished, all of that must of necessity be a part of the eternal, immutable plan of God. So what, in other words, what God does in the end, He decreed, decreed from the beginning. And the same is true for everything in the middle. God is not playing by ear, watching and, and moving and waiting and responding. He's working everything out according to His eternal purpose. Therefore, this work of mediation and of Christ being appointed the mediator has an objective, an aim, a goal, which is as eternal and immutable as God Himself. It's rooted in God. Notice the confession says, speaking of Christ the mediator, unto whom, that's Christ, He, God the Father, did from all eternity give a people to be His seed. 
Notice first, he did give a people to the Son. The Father gave a people to the Son. John 6, 37 and 38, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For, why? Why will you not cast them out? For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. His purpose was to accomplish the eternal plan. The Father has given Him. John 6, 39, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The Father has given me a people in eternity. I can't do any other than raise them up, bring them all the way to glory. So we go in, in that verse, we go from eternity, the Father giving a people to the Son, all the way to eternity future and glory, Christ raising them up. So the Father did give a people to His Son. He did give them from all eternity, as we just saw as well. The, the confession references John 17, 6. Jesus prays, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. When were they yours? In eternity. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Well, how did the Father know which ones to give to the Son? Well, they were His. How did He know which ones were His? Romans 8.30, those whom He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The elect, according to the foreknowledge of God. Ephesians 1.4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Chosen in Christ. That's the language of union. Our eternal election is an election unto salvific mediation. When we are elect or elected in eternity, we are elected to get a mediator. And Christ is set forth as that mediator. Ephesians 1.5, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. We are adopted through Jesus Christ. Christ is the mediator of our predestination unto sonship and He is the mediator of the means of our sonship or our salvation, our adoption. It's all through Christ. That's the point. It's all through Him. Everything that God does for His church, He's doing through Christ. What will be the end for these people, those given in eternity? It says, Unto whom He did from all eternity give a people to be His seed and to be by Him, that's Christ, in time, there's our time stamp, redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. By Him. That is, by Christ. Christ is the mediator of each of these things. All these things are going to be opened up later. They will be redeemed by Him. Purchased by His blood. Called effectually by His Spirit. Justified, declared righteous by the imputation of His righteousness to them. Sanctified, made gradually holy over time by His Spirit working in them. And then glorified. When Christ comes in His ultimate final glory, that's when we too are glorified. It's all through Him, mediated through Him. And all that again is opened up in the later chapters that we could call covenant graces. Things that come to us through the new covenant. All of those things we saw several weeks ago are promised and guaranteed in the new covenant. 
They are effectually secured for us by Christ's life, death, resurrection, and mediation. And also I would just point out that list. Redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, glorified. All That list encompasses all of the concepts contained in the words saved or salvation in the Bible. Salvation or getting saved is not just a it's not just regeneration. There there are a lot of covenant graces and things that Christ has obtained for his people that he's doing for them and brings about in them beyond that moment in time act. The confession references here Romans 8:30 those whom he predestined he also called And those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. It sort of skips that word sanctification, but you can look at glorification as final sanctification or completed sanctification. This is a sure promise guaranteed through the finished work of Christ as our mediator. Because He has successfully completed all of the tasks assigned to Him in the covenant of redemption as our federal head, and He has won the spoils, He has gotten all of these spiritual blessings in Himself, His people are just as sure to receive them in time as we are united to Him by His Spirit through faith. That has to come in time. So yes, there there is an eternal aspect, but we can't begin to talk about being actually uh, partakers in these things until in time by faith when we take hold of Christ. In other words, again, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Christ is the chief blessing. To Him belong all of the blessings. We come to Him by faith. We get Him and we get all of the blessings that are in Him. He mediates all of the gifts and all of the blessings of God to His people. Now, two concluding remarks. Just call this application if you'd like. Number one, does this not make you yearn for a better grasp of Christ and His work beyond what you have now. This is one paragraph. One paragraph of ten just in this chapter. One paragraph. And it's packed full. I think we should in this just yearn to see what it is about Him that causes the Father to delight in Him, to see His perfection at every stage of redemption. If I had to ask you, at what point in time was Jesus justified? Can you answer? Because it's through His being justified that we are justified. So you learn that. You study the Scriptures and, 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 and search these things out in the person of Christ and find how all of these blessings find their root in the person of Christ. It should propel us to deeper and deeper studies of Christ. Paul says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all there. You just got to search it out. So this, this chapter, I think, is going to be a, hopefully a wealth of riches for us as we, as we unpack it. Secondly, this is equally as important. See that God has dealt with men in Christ. No man comes to the Father except through the Son. 
You have to understand that your dealings with God hinge on your dealings with Christ. In our culture, in our society where we live, it is very easy for people to talk about or tend towards God in a very generic sense. God first. I love God. I put God first in everything. God, God, God. And sometimes they may be well-meaning. They may be Christians. And I'm not saying just because they say God that they're pagans. But we need to be clear of, about the means that God has chosen to relate to men. And if we go back to the, the illustration of Joseph, Pharaoh sees in Joseph what... Needs, what he needs to accomplish the salvation of Egypt. So Pharaoh gives Joseph a name, a new name, which means Savior of the world. You can look that up. So if you come to, to Egypt to buy grain, you don't go to Pharaoh's house. You go to Joseph's house. If you're walking around Egypt and you run into Pharaoh and you say, Pharaoh, I need some grain, he's going to say... You need to talk to Joseph about that. I'm not the grain guy. Joseph's the grain guy. He points you to Joseph. As a matter of fact, whenever he appointed him to this task, Pharaoh himself paraded Joseph around at his side and he commands all Egypt bow to him. And so Pharaoh saw himself as a god. The Egyptians considered Pharaoh God. If you were going to honor their god, then you had to bow to the one that he had appointed over all things. That's how it is with, with Christ. God has appointed a mediator, His only begotten Son. And He sets Him up and He upholds Him and He honors Him through suffering. He exalts Him to glory. He parades Him throughout the universe. He sets Him on display through the proclamation of the gospel, through a suffering and joyful church. This is the one that you have to go through to get to God. The question that we need when we're dealing with others, even in our own hearts, is not how do I feel about God in a general sense. We've been talking about apologetics. When we, when we talk about apologetics or with our children, our goal is not to just get people to agree that there is a God. It's to get them to see there is one God. His name is Jesus. The only way to the Father is through Christ. We can talk all day long about the general notion of deity or even God properly called. But if you have no dealings with Christ, you've not come through His mediation, His priesthood, His blood, then you don't have any more dealings with God than the demons have. Apart from Christ, you are like the demons awaiting the time to be tormented by Him. Everybody has a relationship with God, a personal relationship with Him. It's either a mediated relationship of blessing or it is a direct and immediate relation of wrath and curses. This is how we have to deal with God through His appointed mediator. Again, Jesus Himself said, No man comes to the Father except by Me. They asked Him, When will you show us the Father? He says, If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. There's no more to see. This is the revelation of God through His mediator. That's Christ. So, I think this is going to be a fun chapter. Let's pray and then we'll stand and we'll sing one more song.